0: so good to be with you if you're new or visiting my name's Tyler I'm one of the pastors here at the Stone People Bible go and turn to Matthew 9 Matthew 9s 9 we're going to be in our time together Matthew 9 we've been going through the gospel of Matthew for quite some time and we've been what we're trying to do is we go through the gospel of Matthew because it's a narrative it's a story of what Jesus life and ministry was like we're trying to break it up into these sections with different series titles so you can kind of have framework for what's going on in different sections of this narrative of Jesus, Jesus's life and ministry. So we've been calling this one Fathom because we've been working through these miracles of Jesus and the power of Jesus. And the idea of Fathom is that we can't fathom anyone like him because there's no category for someone like him. He's fully God and fully man, so he belongs to no other category. And when you're reading all the miracles, it's meant to show you the utter uniqueness of Jesus that he's so unique that you can read miracle after miracle and miracle and healing after healing and it becomes so many healings that it's monotonous. There's nobody whose healings become monotonous because it happens so often with him. It's meant to teach us there's nobody like him in this category of God and man. So let's go ahead and read together Matthew 9, 27, verse uh, through 34. It says this, and as Jesus passed on from there, Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you, and their eyes were opened. And Jesus certainly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. So in this text, we're gonna see three things in particular. Here's what they're gonna be. First thing is this the feel and experience of faith. The feel and experience of faith. Two, marveling isn't the same as faith. And three, cynicism can never see enough to have faith. All three are in this text, that's what we're gonna do with our time together. So the first things first, the feel and experience of faith. These two blind men are gonna show us four realities of what it means to have faith in Jesus in a broken world. Like not not just the intellectual doctrinal statement that you intellectually assent to, but what does it feel like? What's the experience of having faith in Jesus in this life? They're gonna show us four different things of what does it look like to follow after him when we are full of weakness and brokenness. And the crowds and the Pharisees are gonna contrast that faith and showing us that you can be around Jesus and not have faith in him. So here's the first thing about feel and experience of faith. First thing is this, it's gonna be quick, but it needs to be said. Faith professes need for Jesus. Faith professes need for Jesus. Verse 27, really quickly. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. This has been such a theme throughout this series, but it bears repeating that faith is an expression of neediness. And all you need to get around Jesus and experience his power is recognizing your own need. You don't need strength. You don't need morality. You don't need to be put together at all. It's just the trust that Jesus is the only person who can heal me in all the ways that I desperately need. And what do these blind men say? Look at back verse 27. Say, have mercy on us, son of David. They cry out, we are needy and you are unique. They call him son of David, because God had made all these promises to King David in Israel, the greatest king of Israel, hundreds of years earlier, and God's promise was to David, I'm gonna have your throne continue forever. And the logic of the Old Testament is, wherever God's king is, that's where his kingdom is. Wherever God's kingdom is, that's where people flourish most. So the promise is, I'm gonna bring my kingdom through David's line, and when they say, Jesus, son of David, they're recognizing and saying, you're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one Israel's been hoping for. You're the one the world desperately needs. And we're needy and you're strong. So faith, listen, faith is not strong when you feel like you have everything together. Faith is strong when you're aware of just how weak you are. Faith is strong when you're aware of how broken and needy you are. Faith is not strong when you just are introspective and you hate yourself and self-loathing. That's not faith in Christ. Faith says all that weakness and all that pain and all those hurts, I'm gonna place onto his strong shoulders and I can have confidence when I call out to him, he hears me. This is why suffering and trouble and pain in the Christian life can build your faith in a strange way, why? What does suffering and difficulty teach you? I'm not in control. I'm not strong enough, I'm not disciplined enough, I'm not put together, and yet my faith can grow because it's rooted in my neediness and in his strength. So first and foremost, before we move past it, I wanted to say, it's crying out for mercy on me. Not just the world generally, but on me, son of David. That's the first thing. Second, second, Faith persists even when God is silent. Faith persists even when God is silent. So verse 27, and as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? So notice verse 27, and as Jesus passed on from there, Jesus is on the move. He just heals someone, he's moving on to the very next thing. And notice that phrase, look at it. Two blind men followed him. Think about that. Think about what that actually looked like. Two blind men are following, crying aloud to Jesus. Think about how clumsy and slow they were. Think about how they didn't really know where he was at, they were just moving towards him generally. Think about the fact that they had never seen the miracles. They had never seen for themselves Jesus heal anybody. They'd only heard. They're just like you. They hadn't seen any of the miracles. They had just heard that Jesus had healed people and yet they are dead set on getting to him. And they cry out to Jesus. And I want you to notice this from the text again. They cry out to Jesus and Jesus doesn't initially respond to them. They're crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. Nothing. Have mercy on us, son of David. Nothing. They cry out to him, and he doesn't respond initially. Jesus doesn't speak to them until they get into the house where he's staying. He heard them, but he didn't speak back at first. Now, why is that? Why would Jesus just keep walking when two blind men are trying to be healed by him or shouting out, have mercy on us, son of David? It seems strange, doesn't it? Well, we're not told explicitly in this text what Jesus's intent is, but from the context, I think you can see it's multifaceted. At bare minimum, here's why Jesus wasn't responding. He didn't want to heal them publicly because he was concerned with how the crowds would interpret his ministry. It's hard for us to understand this, but for the Jews at that point in time, when they hear Messiah, it's not just spiritual for them. When they hear Messiah, they have expectations, political expectations, and societal expectations as to what that means, and Jesus knows they think that he's a certain type of Messiah in their minds, and he's come to be a different one. So he doesn't want to stir up their delusions of what he's like any more than already has. That's why he tells them later on, don't tell anybody. He doesn't want them to stir up the crowds into thinking he's someone that he's not. He is the Messiah, but a different one than they were expecting. And other commentators point out that this is Jesus testing their faith. They cry out to him, he doesn't respond, to test to see if their faith is actually genuine. Now, I want you to know this. He is quiet towards their cries, not because he doesn't hear them, and not because he doesn't care for them, but because he had different purposes for them. You need to know this, church. He doesn't respond to their initial cries, not because he doesn't hear or doesn't care, he has different purposes. Listen, God hears you every single time you cry out to him, every time. There is not a prayer you have ever prayed that he hasn't heard, every single time. But hear me, you will not always get the immediate response you're after. And the lack of response is not a sign he's forgotten you. It's not a sign he doesn't care about you. It's not a sign that he isn't real. It's a sign that he has different purposes for you in that moment. And those purposes could be to deepen your faith. Those purposes could be to teach you how to trust him in the waiting. Or listen, those purposes could be bigger than your own little life. The world doesn't revolve around your life or mine. Sometimes your story is for the benefit of other people is teaching other people how to trust God, your friends, your community, your city. And since we've started this series looking at the miracles of Jesus, what we really, really wanted is we wanted God to make us a people who still believe in God's power to save and heal today. That's what we want, I hope it's beginning to stir in you that it's not just power in the past, in the Bible, not just power in the future, at the resurrection, but power today because God the Spirit's with us to do the same thing he's been doing in the church for all time. And I want to, again, to get in your theology of healing that every single prayer for the Christian of healing will be yes one day at the resurrection. He says yes every time, just a matter of when. But some of you, and I know this, you've been praying for healing and you've heard nothing. Maybe since this series started, you began to beg God to heal or to save in a certain way or to move in a certain way, and you've heard nothing. You've cried out to Jesus, like the blind men. Have mercy on me, son of David. And it doesn't seem like he's even turned around. You've cried out again and again, it doesn't seem like he even notices you. Silence from God is the appearance of it, the sense of it. It can be so discouraging. The the, the psalmists are constantly saying, God, where are you? Crying out, Where are you? I don't see you. I've begged you. I know your purposes, but I don't know what you're doing. But I was just reminded recently that silence now doesn't mean silence forever. Silence now from God doesn't mean silence forever from God. There are things that in the last six months, I have been praying and begging God for 10 years that he just now said yes to. Now to be really clear, I wasn't praying straight for 10 years, no way. But I started 10 years ago. Like I, I, I remember I can, these things that I wanted so badly for God to do, I began to beg him for it. But like all of us, you pray a little bit, you pray a couple times, nothing seems to happen. So you pray a little bit more and then honestly, you kind of just give up. I just gave up. I quit praying about the things that I wanted, the things I was longing for, the things I thought I was made for. And then like God does, he moves in your life. And even when you're not dreaming for you, he is kind of thing. And he began to work things in my life. I began to pray again for it. But then guess what? Gave up again, kind of my tendency. And then I started praying again for it. And in the last six months, he has answered some of those cries in ways I honestly could not have imagined. And it was this reminder to me that just because it was quiet doesn't mean he wasn't working. Just because he was quiet doesn't mean he didn't hear me. Every single one of those prayers he heard, silence doesn't mean indifference. It just means different purposes. And you know what's fascinating? Looking back over the last decade, I'm really happy he waited so long. It's a weird thing to say. And I think a lot of humans have this experience. Even if you're here and you're not a believer, you see it all the time, people will look back on their lives and there's a trying time where you didn't want things to be that way but then you look back at it and you're kind of thankful for it because there are things that happened to you that changed you for better through that trial, right? But for Christians, we look back and we see, in the waiting, God was tilling up the soil of my heart for different things. In the waiting, he was getting me ready. Listen, in my waiting for 10 years for this thing, he was getting me ready to receive it as a gift and not a God. He was getting me ready to get the gift and because what, here's what happens, we'll pray and go, God, give it and if he gives it to us, we'll go, great, idol. He's like, that's not what I gave it to you. It's so precious and pretty by God. Like that's what we'll do. But in the waiting, he's getting you ready so when he does give it to you, you can go, it's a gift. It's not my God. It's not my God. That's... What he was doing and me and some of you are waiting and you wanna give up, but the two blind men show you when you don't hear God respond back, keep going after him. Keep going where he is, look look at verse 28. It says, when he, Jesus, entered the house, the blind men came to him. So they're shouting, "Have have mercy on us, son of David, nothing. They think, well, he must just want us to come closer. That's what that means, right? He goes into his house, they're like, there's a door there, open it, here we go, right? They go into his house. And then Jesus speaks to him. So listen, even if you feel clumsy in your faith, even if you feel in the dark in your faith, these blind men remind you, just keep going where Jesus is. Maybe he wants to heal you in private, not in public. Maybe our church is learning something from you before he says yes. Maybe your non-believing friends are learning something, something from you as you wait. But keep going to where he is. Maybe God's teaching you to value him over the thing you want. Your faith can be discouraged. Your faith can be wearied, but God will not allow it to be extinguished. He won't shut that door and keep you out. He will let your faith stay alive. He's the one who keeps our faith going. So the second thing is faith persists even when God is silent. Third, faith in Jesus, no matter the amount, always has access to his power. Okay, look at verse 28. When he entered the house, a blind man came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. The only thing that Jesus asked them is do you believe I'm able to do this? He doesn't ask them about their morality, though it's important. He doesn't ask them about, well, how has your temple attendance been? Oh, how's your quiet time been? Notice you gave up in Leviticus again. Notice that this year. That Bible app sure hasn't been open in a while, right? He doesn't ask them about their track record. He doesn't ask them about their giving, or their serving, or their sexual purity, or how they voted. He doesn't ask them those questions. He just says, do you believe I'm able? That's the scandal of the gospel, by the way. That the way you access God's power is by grace through faith. That's it. Now, can you use that to justify sin and all sorts of disobedience? Sure, but we can never get away from the simple truth that faith is all you need to access his power. No matter how your day has been or week has been or life has been, faith is all that you need to access his power. So in some ways, that's profound and simple, but in other ways, isn't faith, if you've been following Jesus, the hardest thing to conjure up? I wonder what your answer would be right now. If I asked you right now, do you believe he's able to do this? Or maybe the thing in your life, the thing that you are really doubting in your heart, do you believe God's able to do that? I would actually prefer him to ask me about my behaviors. Not because I'm so put together, but that's easier to control. This is why religion is always appealing. If I do enough, I serve enough, I give enough, I abstain enough, I do this, and I do that, then God will give me what I want. That's not what Jesus says. He says, do you believe I'm able? Belief is the harder question. It's a tougher one to answer for some of us. And then what's incredible, they believe and he heals them. Again, the stories of healing are monotonous, but let's not lose the glory of what's going on. They are given sight instantaneously. Instantaneously, they are given sight, and this is actually a miracle that is unique to Jesus. So of all the different miracles we've read, God the Spirit has used other people to accomplish those things. Giving sight to the blind is only done by Jesus. All the Old Testament, news. he's the only one who gives sight to the blind. And then Jesus makes this statement that is very easily misinterpreted. He says, verse 30, he says, then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. According to your faith. Now here's what happens. You can read this at a surface level and and take from this text that God answers prayers in proportion to your faith. And so here's what happens. This teaching is prevalent and it gets in our hearts and we have this mindset that if I had more faith, God would always say yes. That if I have, if I just believe more, then my miracle would come. There's a problem with that. The Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, Father, if there's any other way, let's do it. And God says, no. If there's any other way, God, let's do it. And the Father says, no. Do any of you want to argue you have more faith than Jesus? It's a different conversation, right? There's no one in here who has more faith in Jesus and he still hears no. So it's not in proportion to faith that God responds. Jesus isn't saying it's because your faith is so strong. Notice what the text says. It says according to your faith, not according to the amount of your faith. He's saying according to the fact that faith even exists in you. The fact that faith is present in you, because what makes faith strong is not faith itself, it's the object of faith that makes it strong. Jesus is the strong one. He says, do you believe I'm able to do this? So flimsy faith in Jesus is strong because of him. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, it is not the strength of your faith but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Please listen to that. It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. A weak hold on Jesus barely hanging on is stronger than a tight grip on anything else. A drop of faith in Jesus is stronger than the greatest roaring waterfall of self-reliance. Don't fret when your faith is weak. Praise God that it exists. So, oh, there's so many Christians who hate themselves because they think I should believe more. That's not how Jesus sees it. He praises God that faith even there. The fact that you're struggling is the evidence of life. Dead people don't move. Please know that. Like you, you, so often Satan will take this, the most gentle, soft-hearted people in here and use these words to condemn you. And the hard-hearted people who don't care think they're good. Don't fret when your faith is weak. Jesus is tender and gentle towards weak faith. He heals by it. He saves by it. The, later on in Matthew 12, listen to the prophecy the Old Testament, talking about the Messiah, it says, a bruised reed he will not break. You don't know anybody like this man. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. The idea is a bruised reed has no utility or purpose or function anymore. It's bruised, it's broken, it should be discarded. And Jesus says, I put my hands around a bruised reed and I make sure and hold it up a smoldering wick, not giving light to anything. He puts his hands around and fans into flame. He's gentle and tender towards weak faith. So faith, no matter the amount, has access to his power. Fourth, faith isn't nullified by disobedience. Faith isn't nullified by disobedience. Verse 31, this is a strange verse. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. See that no one knows about it, these men have just been healed. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. So these men, completely healed by Jesus, immediately disobey him, like immediately. And and he doesn't just say like, hey guys, free go, dap up, bro hug, don't tell nobody, see you later. That's not how it works. He says, look at the text, sternly warn them. Jesus is saying, for real, for real, don't tell nobody, right? Like, stern, don't tell anyone. And their disobedience, it's so brazen that when you read it, all of us, myself included, you're like, I mean, is it really sin? Like, you read it and you're like, I mean, maybe it's not a big deal because doesn't Jesus want his name to be spread, right? It's like a weird test. Say, don't tell anybody. Or should you? I don't know. Like, you (sighs) And if you're here and you're thinking, you're like, oh, no evangelism, this is not what he's talking about, okay? different purpose in salvation history right here. But you see, it's so brazen, or you think, well, maybe it's no big deal because they just got healed. They're so excited. How could they be quiet about it? I mean, could you imagine two men who've been blind their whole lives at a dinner party next, at that next week? They're like, anything big happen in your life? They're like, nope, 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 nothing. <laughs> Conceived, nothing, I'm fine. Like, like that's... And so we go, well, maybe like it's, it's, he's under, it's understandable because they're so excited. Or we think they must have great faith. They were just healed by Jesus. They must be so powerful in faith. Church, hear me. Power and maturity are different things, by the way. You can experience the power of the Holy Spirit and not be mature. Just because someone was used powerfully doesn't mean their next action should be followed. What they just did was sin. Because to ignore Jesus' word to rebel against it, to not obey it, is sin. This is why Christians are so confusing, right? This is why. If you have fallen Jesus, you know this experience, okay? You have an experience where God just shows up he shows up, you, and, and, and what I mean by show up is you're so aware that he loves you. You're so aware that he's in control. You're so aware that he's good. You see him changing you and healing you and forgiving you, and it's undeniable to you, and you're in awe of it. And you're like, God, I promise I'm gonna be different. And then you walk out and you sin immediately. Let's just take Sunday morning. You're in here praising Jesus. You get in that parking lot, you're flipping the bird to somebody. And you're like, what just happened? who am I? Like I for, for people who, who get to serve you from this stage, it's an absolute privilege, but it's so, it's so weird for us to have these moments where God is using us and in, in, in responding back to you, and it's just a phenomenal thing to, to lead on a Sunday. And then for me to get home that night preaching on grace and patience of God, and my kids, I'm like, the grace of God is for you, but if you're not in bed, I don't know. Like, like that, you find yourself, where did all this love go? Christians are confusing because of that. It's confusing, but I want you to know this. Our sins don't diminish what God has done. Our sins don't diminish what God has done. Just because you fail in the parking lot doesn't mean he wasn't here. But also this, our, our, sin, our sin is not explained away because God just moved in power. What God has done doesn't diminish the sinfulness of ignoring Jesus's word. These men were completely healed and they completely, completely disobeyed. Both can be true at the exact same time. Even with good intentions, we can disobey God. This will help you understand yourself, understand other people. That's what faith is like in Jesus, right? Like that There's the faith through grace in Christ, but Then you live it out and you're like, oh, it's complicated, there's silence. I don't hear him all the time. I'm clumsy, I fail. That's what faith feels like. And God sustains faith in his people. So there's two blind men but then there's crowds and Pharisees to show us the contrast of what faith in Jesus looks like. And we'll go through these a lot quicker. Here's the first one. Marveling, marveling is not the same as faith. Look at verse 31. It says, as they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds marveled saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. So stop right there. It's a very quick telling. It's incredible ministry to have where Matthew's having to speed up and go, yeah, demon oppressed guy, couldn't speak. He was healed, whatever. And he moves on, right? He's going so quick because his purpose is not about the healing necessarily. His purpose is to tell you about the crowds and the Pharisees. The crowds marveled saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Do not view these people as gullible people who didn't know any better, like yeah, demons get cast out all the time, no big deal. Don't think because we're further on in history that we're smarter or better than them and we're more perceptive or sophisticated than them. When they see this, what do they all say? Never was anything like this seen in Israel. All of them are in awe of it and none of them know what to make of it. But here's what you need to know about the crowds. They marvel at Jesus, but they don't have faith in him. The crowds are always portrayed as people who are around Jesus, but not committed to Jesus. So they're all for Jesus when he's displaying his power, when he's teaching on topics that they care about, when he's critiquing the people they think need it, when he's feeding them, when he's moving among them, but when he begins to challenge them to love him above everybody, they pull back. When he begins to not just critique, to move that critique from their enemies and the powers over them to them, and not just critiquing your sins, but critiquing your loves and the order of them, when he moves and shows that he's untamable and he's not interested in being popular but being faithful, the crowds begin to pull back from him. And I sincerely, if you have been checking out, lock back in, I wonder how many of you are in that camp. Even if you're a Christian and you're struggling and being tempted by that. Let's say you've experienced his power before. You've had moments where it's been clear to you, God is real, can't deny that. His presence is active. You've benefited from other Christians in a season of crisis. You've been helped by a sermon or Bible lab or Christian counselor. You've even found yourself reading the Bible and marveling at Jesus. But here's the question you need to ask yourself. But has Jesus become singular for you? Does he stand out in your life? Is there anybody who exercises the same amount of authority over you as he does? Is there anybody that can cause you to shift your life more than him? Is there anybody who compares in what you're willing to sacrifice to maintain that relationship? Or is he one of many authorities? Is he one of many people to consider? Is he one of multiple perspectives? And once he begins to turn his attention to something in your life you're uncomfortable with, you begin to find yourself pulling away. You find yourself, you get around church, and you get around Christians, and you, you like what's going on, but you can't seem to make it a priority. You can't seem to make it something you should care about. And you drift in and out, I think this is many of us. We drift in and out of being around him. Now, I love Jesus with the crowds, because listen, Jesus never tells the crowds to leave. They do leave, but he never tells them to. Like This is what zealous disciples and self-righteous people do. They look at people who aren't in and go, if you're not in, then get out, right? To to use an illustration that's very near and dear to all of our hearts in this gymnasium, a great example of this that happens all the time is let's just say, and I'm not here to put anybody on blast, if this is you, you're loved by God and by me. but like during announcements, people will leave, right? It's a favorite part of the service, like, but you have things going on, you have to leave. And people throughout the years will come up to me and go, why do they even come, you know? And I look at them, I go, why do you even come? Like, I, I don't. I'm like, it's like a half mile to every car, okay? It's no big deal. But what happens is you have this, this tendency to go, if you're not in, we need your chair. You're like, these chairs aren't that good. Like, we, we, we want you here, right? We want you to be a part of this. Jesus never tells the crowds to leave, never. But he does say, I want you to come. But he says, I'm not changing for you. And he says, if you want to be with me and know me, then it's not gonna be just halfway or 90%. It is all or nothing. But he never tells them to leave. They leave because they can't receive him. They leave because they can't receive but he says, not because he refuses to engage them. So marveling is different than faith. Last thing that we're done, cynicism. Cynicism can never see enough to have faith. Verse 34, but the Pharisee said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. So the it is so interesting. The Pharisees, they can't deny the fact that that Jesus is casting out demons. It's, it's too apparent that that's what's just happened, but what do they do? They refuse to believe, and as good cynics do, they see through what's going on to what's really behind this. That's what cynicism is. It's seeing through something that appears good. And saying, here's the real motivation. Can you relate to that? Oh, you think that's good, but here's really what's going on. Oh, we cast out demons, but by the prince of demons. He may be powerful, but he's actually using it to get your vote. He's actually using it to woo you into his schemes, to woo you into his intents. He's actually using it to get you to leave the faithful life of God, to leave the faithful, thoughtful, loving, good life. I need you to hear the sentence. There is no amount of seeing God work that can convince a cynic that God can be trusted. Don't check out and think that's an overstatement. I'm gonna explain it. There's no amount of seeing God work that can convince a cynic that God can be trusted. He's casting out demons, and they will not be persuaded. I've been there. I'm saying that as a cynic, preaching cynics. I've been there. Maybe you're there right now. The way out of cynicism is not God proving himself to you. The way out of cynicism is you being honest about where the cynicism comes from, about where it comes from. Cynics don't arrive there on their own. Whether if you're cynical here or maybe you have friends who don't believe in Jesus and they seem so cynical about everything, listen, they don't arrive there on their own. Like you don't start cynical. Like my kids don't start cynical, they'll believe anything I tell them, right? that's why your parents have such an effect on you because as a child, you look to them to tell me what's true. There's all sorts of other issues, but you don't start cynical. What teaches you to be cynical? Hurt. Pain. Letdown. Disappointment. People you thought were for you and they're not. In the church, spiritual people who end up not being spiritual. That's how you get there. It's life in a corrupt, selfish, broken world. And until as the cynic in you and in me can be honest about why you're angry, and why you're sad, and why you're fearful with God, until you can be honest, you will explain away every work God does. You'll explain away every act of kindness in the church. You'll explain away every answered prayer. You'll explain away every moment of God's presence, and all of it will wilt under your all-seeing eye of distrust and disappointment. And all you'll be able to remember are the failures of the church. And all you'll be able to remember are the prayers that never happened. And when God seemed imaginary, I know this all too well. And you know the, the, the devastating thing about cynicism? when you begin to cut, because what you're trying to do, you're trying to cut yourself off from pain. You don't want to be let down again. You don't want to be hurt again. You want to, it's, a, it's a defense tactic. But when you cut yourself off from pain and feeling that from people, then you cut yourself off from love and goodness too. That was literally, I, I was in a counseling session and my counselor told me that and I was like, I'm gonna go cry in the car. Like, that, like that's, <laughs> I, when you cut off the hurt, you cut off the joy too and cynicism can't stand and make you flourish, and all of us go through it. All of us have these seasons where you, and sometimes it's not even spoken, but you think, if God would just prove himself, I'd believe. If he would just do this or that or explain this, then I would believe, but the problem is not that God hasn't done enough. The problem is we're too scared to be vulnerable, and we're too proud to be humble. Again, the way out of cynicism is not placing demands on God. The way out of cynicism is placing your hurting, scared heart before him. When your conversations with God turn from an argument into a counseling session. When you move from where God should be to an honest posture of where you are. And the truth is, God has already given you everything you need to know he's trustworthy in the midst of a broken world because Jesus didn't just come and teach and heal. If that's all that he did, he would not be the savior that we needed. He came and he suffered just like you. He knows what it's like to be let down. He knows what it's like to have friends leave him. He knows what it's like for spiritual figures to not be what they claim to be. He knows what that's like. He came and he suffered with us and he suffered for us. And this is why the resurrection is incredible because the resurrection says, with God, evil does not win. That's why cynicism can't exist with God because it ends with love and joy in the end that behind all things, through all the darkness, God is in control. And the resurrection says, even when it's most dark, God's light and love will prevail for his people. He gave his life. of all the things he could have made most clear to us, he wanted to make his love most clear. What more could he do to sway our hearts? I have no idea where you're at in this room. And listen, you can be a Christian and be in all three of these categories. You can be a non-Christian, be in all three of these categories. You, some of you are right now are so weary in the waiting or you're so guilty because you keep failing in ways you thought you wouldn't. Some of you have genuine faith and you're so tempted right now just to g- come in and out of faith. You're like, I wanna be serious about Jesus one day and not the other. Some of you right now wanna, are tempted to be cynical about everything and anyone who's sincere, you wanna tell them how they shouldn't be. Here's the hope, here's the hope. Jesus interacts with all of them. Jesus interacts with all of them. The broken, needy people who nobody notices and don't have power and prestige in the world so no one has them into the home, Jesus does. And they get to him. The crowds get to him. The cynics talk with him. And here's what Jesus promises you. He will always love you, he'll always serve you, and he'll always tell you you the truth. He'll never lie to you. And as you get older, you know where you're gonna find? Friends who love you and don't lie to you are rare. Are rare. That's so why there's not a friend like him. He will love you and he'll never lie to you even if it offends you. And see, only faith, only faith she sees Jesus clearly. That's why two blind men, two blind men could see what the crowds and Pharisees couldn't. Son of David, son of God, with the kingdom of heaven in his hands to make all things new. I believe he's able to do it for us. Let's pray. Father, there are so many different stories and hearts and circumstances that would describe how our posture is towards you right now. God, I really would love for you to help make this room a bit more honest about whatever that is. And that for those of us who are weary in the waiting, God, would you keep us alive in faith to keep coming after you. With those of us who are frustrated with ourselves, we don't have more faith, would you help us praise you that we do? Those of us who have failed and we think that means you never loved us, God, help us trust that your grace goes further still. For those of us, God, who are, if we're honest, our allegiance to you is waffling and we can't seem to find time for you, God, give us eyes to see Jesus for as great and as satisfying as he is. And God, for the cynics in this room, I know know it so well. Help us be honest about where it comes from. God, you know how we've been hurt. You know the pain and the sorrow and the letdown. And Jesus, you know it so well that you came and you wrapped yourself in it that you're a leader who knows exactly what it's like to be us. You suffered with us, you suffered for us, you rose from the dead to take away our jaded, cynical hearts and give us hope because your life will never be snuffed out. And Jesus, now we're united with you, so our lives will never be snuffed out. Death does not get the final word for us. Disappointment doesn't get the final word for us. Pain doesn't get the final word for us. So help us, Jesus, to trust that if you've been raised from the dead, then so will we. We can trust you. Wherever we are, God, help us go to wherever you are. Whatever that means. Whatever that takes. Have mercy on us, son of David. In Christ's name, amen.